Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth, meaning, and beauty. And we welcome you all here this morning. I'm Chris Jimerson, Minister for Program Development here at the church, and I have with me Margaret Borden, who is our lay leader this morning. We welcome you here, and we bring you greetings also from our senior minister, Meg Barnhouse, who is out on sabbatical um, to heal from an infection she got during surgery on a hip implant. She is off of the treatment now and will be getting a test in just a few days to make sure the infection's gone, after which they will hopefully put in a new hip implant, and she will be on her way back to rejoin us soon after that. I want to welcome our visitors this morning, too. We're so glad that you're here. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you to greet the holy among us this morning by turning to those around you and welcoming them here. It is also a tradition in our Unitarian Universalist churches to light a chalice to begin our services. The chalice is a symbol of our faith. Please say with me our words for lighting the chalice, which are printed in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Unitarian Universalism is a faith without creed. There's no single set of beliefs we all have to sign on to and agree with. So sometimes people ask us, well, then what holds you all together? Well, I think one of the things that holds this church together is our mission. It's our common purpose. We put it on our wall and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. This is the time in our service when we breathe together. We breathe together. We feel one another's loving presence around us. And breathing together, some of us pray, some of us meditate. Some simply concentrate on our breathing. We follow our breath to a deeper place inside, a place of greater wisdom. That spark of the divine within each person. Breathing together, we enter into a time of silence together remembering that in this church, human sounds and the sounds of small children are a part of the silence. Breathing together, let us now enter that time of sacred silence together. Singer, songwriter, and performance artist Amanda Palmer writes, So a plea to the artists, creators, 
scientists, nonprofit runners, librarians, strange thinkers, startuppers, and inventors, to all people everywhere who are afraid to accept help in whatever form it's appearing, please take the donuts. To the guy in my opening band who was too ashamed to go out into the crowd and accept money for his band, take the donuts. To the girl who spent her 20s as a street performer and stripper living on less than $700 a month, who went on to marry a best-selling author whom she loves unquestioningly, but even that massive love can't break her unwillingness to accept his financial help, please, everybody, please just take the four-letter word with I-N-G at the end of it, donuts. That's from Palmer's book, The Art of Asking, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Let People Help. Palmer derives her take the donuts as a metaphor for being willing to ask for and accept help from a story she tells about someone who we Unitarian Universalists claim as one of our own, Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau was among our transcendentalist ancestors, and those ideas of the transcendentalists, they still influence our Unitarian Universalist religious worldview today, not to mention they still influence the whole of American culture. Now, Thoreau is maybe best known for his book Walden, which goes through his thoughts and experiences living mainly alone for almost three years in a 10-by-15-foot cabin in the woods next to Walden Pond. What is less often discussed, as Amanda Palmer points out, is that Thoreau's cabin sat on land owned by his friend and fellow transcendentalist Ralph Waldo Emerson, whose home in Concord was less than a two-mile walk away from the cabin. What's more, Emerson had Thoreau over for dinner quite often during his time roughing it by the pond. Also, Thoreau's mother and sister brought him a basket of baked goods every Sunday, which apparently included fresh donuts. Now, we often attribute our hyper-individualism and extreme self-reliance to the transcendentalists, but from this story, it seems that these may not have encompassed the entirety of their thinking and way of living. Thoreau wasn't foolish. He took the donuts when they were offered. Part of Palmer's point is that this misconstrual has led to a culture in which we can easily overvalue individual independence, strength, and control. We can find it very, very difficult to ask for help, even when we very much need that help. We won't let ourselves take the donuts, even when they are freely offered, because we view accepting help as a sign of weakness. And this can get reflected in us both as individuals and in our larger communities and our larger society. Even our Unitarian Universalist churches have struggled sometimes with a go-it-alone perspective, not always fully actualizing how we could help one another and learn from one another. So I'm really happy to report that much work is being done on this at the local, regional, and national levels right now on how we can get better at this, get better connected amongst our churches and our other UU institutions. As a country, 
The U.S. has often taken a go-it-alone or even domineering posture. We spend more on military and defense than the next eight countries in our world combined, and this at a time when military strength won't solve the kinds of problems we're facing, like terrorism and global climate change. We will need the help of others to solve many of these modern-day problems. And all at the same time, we don't provide adequate support and care for the poor, our children, people with disabilities and chronic diseases, and the elderly. If we view asking for help as a sign of weakness, it is far too easy for a society to begin viewing needing help as a sign of some kind of character flaw and thus being unworthy of our support. A society's values and ethics, I think, can be measured based upon how well it takes care of its young it's sick and disabled, and it's elderly. By that measure, I'm afraid ours is in danger of a great moral failure if we don't change course soon. The thing is, we will all face these challenges in our lives. Some of us may face economic challenges at some point. We will all get sick from time to time. All of us will age. Even if we don't currently face physical or mental challenges, still, someday we're going to discover that we are only temporarily abled. In fact, the only way we can avoid an eventual deterioration of our physical abilities is, is if we somehow manage to get ourselves dead first. We all will need the help of other people at some points in our lives. On top of that, there are many other life situations where even if we're capable of making decisions, capable of acting on our own, we can still benefit from asking for help. And by doing so, we can improve not only our own lives, but the lives of others. Complete self-reliance is an impossibility. Human beings need and always have needed one another to survive as a species and to live as fully and as best we can as individuals. In her book, May Day, Asking for Help in Times of Need, M. Nora Claver, a renowned business and organizational coach, argues that asking for help can actually lead to making better decisions, generating more creative possibility, improving our emotional well-being, and forming deeper relationships. Now, Claver says that not only do we often fail to ask for help when we need it, we are usually terribly bad at it when we do ask for help. We fidget, we fumble our words, we cast our eyes downward. Now, she offers several reasons why we dislike and are so bad at asking for help, but the greatest among them is simply fear. She describes three forms of fear that are rooted in lies that we tell ourselves. One, fear of surrendering control. We're afraid that if we ask for and accept help, we will give up our independence and our control over our own lives. In reality, though, we have far less control than we thought we did in the first place. And sometimes surrendering into the present moment the current situation, the flow of our lives, leads to some of our greatest spiritual experiences. Likewise, 
allowing someone else to help us when we are in need can be a gift of graciousness to them. Two, fear of separation. We fear that if we ask for help, those from whom we seek that help or others who witness our asking for it may reject us. This is based on a primal human fear, the lie that we are always ultimately alone in the world, when in fact we are always greatly interconnected. Three, fear of experiencing shame. We're afraid that if we ask for help, we'll reveal our inabilities, our flaws and shortcomings and be judged unworthy. We tell ourselves a lie about how we must be perfect in order to deserve human worth and dignity. That's right. Claver tells a story about a woman she calls Gina to illustrate all of this. Gina was a young mom whose husband lost his job and he was unable to find another job for an extended period. So Gina found herself supporting her family not just financially but emotionally as well. She took a promotion to a higher level of responsibility in her work life, but then she had people relying on her both at home and at work. And to meet all of those people's needs, she started neglecting herself. She gained weight, started smoking, and ignored the growing depression she was feeling. When Claver first met Gina, she was on the verge of breaking down, but was terrified to ask for help she was terrified of failing at her job, that if she took any time off to take care of herself, she would be letting down those who reported to her. Fear of surrendering control. She felt as if she had to be perfect, a boss, wife, and mother without flaws. Fear of shame. In fact, she worried constantly that she might actually lose her job. Fear of separation. Wiping tears from her eyes, she had sobbed, No one can help me. I just have to deal with this situation on my own. It took a lot of convincing, but Gina finally agreed to direct some of the concern and compassion she had been showering on others towards herself. She sought help. She called the employee assistance program at her work and asked them to help her get counseling for her depression. She talked to her boss and asked for time off so that she could attend to her own needs. She got her mom to help watch her own young son for a few days so she could spend some time at a cabin in a rural area getting some rest. She asked her husband to understand that she needed this time to herself and that she needed him to take care of things so that she could get that time to herself. And every single one of them gave her the help she needed. Three months later, Gina's life was going so much better. She and her husband had grown, grown closer. She no longer worked overtime every week and, in fact, had become very protective of her family and alone time. Her energy returned. She lost weight. She quit smoking. Now, to bring about this change and allow herself to reach out, Claver says that Gina had to embrace three virtues. Compassion, particularly for herself. Faith, that if she asked for help, at least some of the changes for which she hoped would happen. And finally, gratitude, 
for all that she already had and for the help received from others so that those relationships could grow even stronger. Asking for help had transformed her life in ways that going it alone never could have. Compassion, faith, gratitude, transformation. Those sound like spiritual terms to me. And it makes me believe that developing our willingness and capacity to ask for help when we need it is a spiritual endeavor. Like many of our spiritual quests, though, it takes intentional practice. We're not automatically good at it. And especially with asking for help, we need the practice because most of us have never been taught how to go about asking for help. And we have few, if any, models, stories, or mythologies to follow. Let's look at one example. I'm interested, how many of you are familiar with the New Testament story about the Good Samaritan? Raise your hands. Most of you. Now, how many of you know the biblical story of Jairus? Almost no one. Actually, absolutely no one, although you use may be a bad sample for this. How about the Canaanite woman? One. This is what's important about that. The good Samaritan story is about offering help. The other two are about asking for help. It's telling that the religious tale about offering help is in our psyches much more strongly than the stories about asking for help. Perhaps we need to tell and uphold those other stories more often. And in this religious community, we could do that. And we could also create new stories and practices affirming that developing our individuality and accepting communal support are not opposite ends of a duality. That we can help each other become our most whole selves and to be as self-reliant as is healthy and possible given whatever our circumstances might be seems to me that church is the perfect place within which we could create a loving environment, that beloved community that encourages and supports asking for help, a place where we can all help each other learn how to take the four-letter word with I-N-G on the end of it, donuts. Here's the process M. Mora Claver suggests we practice regarding how we ask for help. Before making a request for help, get clear on what the real need is. Make sure what would actually be helpful and think about the people that could give you that help and that you trust. Then, if the timing isn't urgent, take a break before you ask and engage in something that helps you find a greater sense of calmness. Then set up a time to ask in person, if at all possible. During the request... Let yourself take a leap of faith that new paths will open up no matter what the response to the request. And then word the ask as simply as possible. After the request, be grateful. Listen intently and then express that gratitude no matter what the response. You will have something for which to be grateful. 
No matter what, you will learn more about your relationships as well as the situation your friends and loved ones themselves might be in. Sometimes people want to help but can't because they don't have the capability or they themselves are facing some big challenge at the same time. At the very worst, you might discover that a relationship is not what you thought it was or that it is in need of repair. Most of the time, though, People will want to help. No matter what happens, new opportunities will appear to you and you will have grown in compassion, gratitude, and faith. Asking for help requires that we have the courage to be vulnerable, to risk real human connection. The members of this church practice this together. May this be a community of love and support that nurtures both asking for and offering to help one another. May we walk in the ways of love together, giving and receiving of one another's unique gifts and abilities. The song says, I get by with a little help from my friends. May we go even further. May we proclaim together, we're going to thrive with a little help from our friends, our families, and this, our beloved religious community. Amen. Now, would you please join me as we say our words for extinguishing our chalice, which are printed in your order of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Go in peace. Take the donuts.